Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live here on the alternate current radio network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com after the show on the podcasting platforms, uh, including iTunes uh, and also Podomatic. Uh, and a big hello to everybody in the ACR chat room uh, out there on the live stream right now. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. It's uh, certainly been an eventful week. Uh, we're going to break down some of that and more with our next guest. Uh, she is a independent journalist. Uh, she has been working and uh, doing quite a lot of work uh, in and around Syria uh, in the Middle East now for uh, quite a few years. She has been on the show before. Her name is Eva Bartlett. She's joining me right now on the live link uh, from the Middle East. Hello, Eva. Hi, Pat. And it's good to talk with you again. Great to great to have you back, Eva. And we've been following your work uh, online on social media, and you've got tremendous amount of uh, information and interviews and a lot of different experiences that you've shared with people uh, on social media we've seen and it's been looks like you've been pretty busy uh, in Syria you've you've arrived right on the the tail end of of quite a big event Eva and so you know things are still fresh there uh, I'm talking specifically about the supposed chemical weapons attack so that uh, supposedly happened in Duma, I believe, on April 7th or something like this. Um, I'm not sure if I got the, the date right on that, but the airstrikes are on uh, April 13th, which was Friday, Friday the 13th, that ominous day uh, in April. And so I'm going to cut right to the chase. And firstly, hope you're well. How are you? And uh, tell, us about, uh, tell us about Duma. What, what really happened? Yeah, thank you. I am well, um, and I'm in the midst of plotting through um, three weeks' worth of documentation from various parts of Syria, um, and, of course, um, translating and then eventually subtitling it. A number of videos and testimonies I took um, in eastern Ghouta, in Aleppo, in southern Syria. So um, I have a lot of work to do to get all the facts, you know, down on paper, but I can tell you the basics. Um, in Douma, I went on um, a, the first Sunday that I was in Syria, a few weeks ago, I went to Douma, and I went to the hospital in question, the one that is shown, um, the one where people are shown being hosed down in one of the videos alleging that the Syrian government used chemical weapons. And um, it was definitely the same hospital. You can see the coloring on the walls and the, the hose that was used to hose down um, alleged victims, including um, Hassan Diab, that young boy that testified that he was not actually gassed but was given treats um, to, uh, you know, to be in the video. Um, I, of course, didn't get to speak with Hassan Diab, but I did speak with a medical student, uh, Marwan Jabber, who was in the hospital at the time that, that victims, alleged victims, started coming into the hospital. And he said that while he wasn't in the room the moment they came in, he did come into the room shortly after. And uh, he basically said that the people that brought them in were not from the area. They were strangers. And in his opinion, they didn't have medical training, didn't really know what they were doing medically. That, and we know now, others before me have already uh, spoken about this, but that they were shouting about chemical weapons. People started panicking. He said, um, of course, there was shelling happening because this is a war. There was shelling happening and that when shelling happens, they often get cases of people coming in with um, breathing problems um, and people with asthmatic symptoms or just regular breathing problems. People also that, that people had been staying in their basements um, due to the shelling. And so they were having issues related, health issues related to being in, in dank basements for long periods of time. But he, he definitively said he did not see any sort of um, people suffering from reactions due to a chemical weapon attack. And he also made the point that none of these staff, doctors, nurses, and other staff on hand that day suffered from treating these people, which would have been the case you would expect if they were, in fact, treating people that had been, um, you know, doused with some sort of um, toxic chemical. They themselves were not wearing protective gear, so if it was actually a toxic chemical, then they would have been they would have had secondary effects. But none of them had any issues, and he also said none of the people that were brought into that hospital died in the hospital. So um, clearly, at least that part of the story um, that we have been told is has been you know um, nullified by the testimonies of this this man, other doctors that people who went there prior to me. Um, his, their testimonies, and of course the people that testified um, 
outside, I, I can't remember if it was in Geneva or where it was, but the, the people that testified, or maybe the Hague, that testified outside of Syria, giving their own um, accounts. The hospital also, it wasn't actually a hospital, it was a field hospital. Um, I believe it was an agricultural building before that. Um, it was um, buttressed with sandbags and, and um, earth, and it had, um, people know by now, it had this amazing tunnel system below ground that could not have been built um, simply in the last couple of years. I mean, it, it was a very, um, it's certainly not built, um, in, in my opinion, in the opinion of others who have seen this system, not built by just locals trying to escape the bombings. It was very well-crafted, very long tunnels, very wide tunnels, and I walked a segment, like, for five minutes, maybe a kilometer um, of the tunnel. And so these were very well-designed tunnels, and that's an important aspect. They were leading from the, the field hospital to other um, areas, and they were, of course, um, means for terrorists to um, be underground and escape being shelled, um, as the Syrian army was targeting terrorists. But also in Duma, um, I had the chance just to walk along one of the main streets where there are a lot of, um, like a market area, where there was a lot of shops open, vendors of vegetables and fruits, and speak with the people one-on-one. Um, -on -one. Um, I, I do speak Arabic, so I could understand what they were saying, but I also had a translator, and I also recorded everything so that I can um, accurately translate what they had to say. But they spoke of life under the rule of the terrorists there um, and, and the fact that they were deprived of food, just like we saw in eastern Aleppo, just like I saw in Madaya. They were deprived of food due to the terrorists. Um, I did ask, wherever I went in Ghouta, I asked if people had interacted with the White Helmets, if the White Helmets had been saving them, and I either got a straightforward answer that, no, they only saw the White Helmets working with the terrorists, or that they didn't know anything about them because they hadn't been allowed to go near them, which is very strange given that we're told that the White Helmets were mixing with civilians and saving civilians. And people, um, not just in, in Duma, but I also went to Kafarbatna and I also went to Sakba, all areas of eastern Ghouta, and I got that same reply, those same replies from people in each of those areas, um, which is not surprising given what we know about the White Helmets. Um, and so, in other words, uh, sorry, in, in, in terms of the other areas I went to, um, I know that Vanessa Bealy also went to Sakba, and perhaps you guys talked about the White Helmet Center there, but I'll just briefly summarize that there was a two-building White Helmets complex in Sakba, and it was literally 200 meters or less down a lane from a bomb-making factory manufacturing munitions for mortars to larger um, bombs and missiles. Uh, so clearly the White Helmets were working with terrorists in that area as well. And um, I, my interest in going to, um, uh, what was the third place? Oh, Kafarbatna was related to the allegations of a chemical attack in 2013 because um, Adam Larson of A Closer Look on Syria um, has done a lot of research with other people looking into the films that were, that were shown to the public at the time of the alleged August 2013 alleged chemical weapons attacks. And so they finally deduced that one of the hospitals that was allegedly treating victims was in Kafarbatna. So I went there and I was able to talk with the hospital administrator who was on staff at the time in question, but he wasn't in the hospital the night in question. But he relayed to me what he had been told by doctors who were on staff. Um, and he said essentially in the middle of the night, hundreds of alleged victims were brought into this hospital. Um, and a great number of children from surrounding areas, um, surrounding villages in eastern Ghouta were brought into the hospital. None of them were actually showing, according to him, according to doctors he, he's relaying information from, none of them were showing... Um, at the time they were brought in, were showing any symptoms of gassing. So what happened to them, we, we still don't know exactly what happened. Uh, there were reports of mass burials of, of children being buried alive and adults being buried alive. I didn't hear that firsthand. I heard that from citizens in eastern Ghouta areas relaying what they had heard. So, of course, that needs to be probed. I know that Vanessa Bili did get a testimony from people in one of the villages she visited in eastern Ghouta to the effect that children and other people were buried alive um, so that, that's certainly something that we need to look into more. Uh, but the hospital in um, Kafarbatna was, I'm, I'm positive it was the one, um, tuberculosis hospital, I'm positive it was the one that was in at least one of the, the 2013 videos because the room aligns with scenes in the videos. Um, and there, were, there was also a tunnel system underneath that hospital. So that's it's becoming a common theme is in these areas where terrorists are operating under the guise of being rebels, bringing freedom and democracy, they have um, very sophisticated tunnel networks to keep them 
um, safe while they basically kept civilians hostage. And, and uh, just quickly, uh, Eva, regarding Eastern Ghouta, I think it's really important you brought that up because, of course, that's part of the the story of uh, the the Western narrative of Assad's using chemical weapons against his own people. August 2013, uh, Parliament in the UK nearly uh, passed a, a vote to you know bomb Syria effectively, and of course, the United States, the Obama administration, would have followed suit had that happened, but it didn't. But Petri Kohn, Caustic Logic, I believe he's a colleague of Adam Larson uh, at A Closer Look on Syria, released quite a provocative uh, video looking at this and used the same exact uh, footage that 60 Minutes used. I don't know if you saw this video that they put out a few months ago. Uh, and it, it it shows that there are people on the ground purporting to be uh, presented as chemical weapons victims with their throats slit uh, with 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 the blood hemorrhaging from the top of their head clearly this wasn't these aren't people who uh were in a chemical weapons attack um this is something else eva did you happen to see that video and is that the lo- same location that you visited that yes i did actually see the video um uh, i i didn't know that petri was involved in that but yes um i adam larson had forwarded it and i did see that video it's it's quite grim. You see more than one. You see, um, if I remember, at least three, maybe five um, people who have clearly had a throat or head injury. So it's illogical to think that they were gassed to death when they were bleeding after the fact. Um, and that was the hospital in question, um, because when I look at the video and look at the, the tiling and the, the coloring in the, the hospital that I visited, it is the same. And even there were two rooms. I remember that video. They... Um, in excuse me, in analyzing the video, they they dubbed the top floor the sun morgue and the bottom floor the dark morgue. I believe um, the bottom floor was where those bodies would have been laid out, and the top. Uh, let me let me double check that. No, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I, now I'm trying to remember because the top floor, what they dubbed the sun sun morgue, is now um, a room with walls blown out. But actually, that would have been the, the one where the bodies were laid out because there, you can see in the video these square pillars um, in the room, and that cor- correlates to the room that I saw with the walls blown out. But it is a room where um, cars or other vehicles bringing people to the hospital, that would have been the first room they accessed unless they went around the hospital to the back. So it is logical that that was the room that was used in the video in question. Yes, and uh, a striking video. We'll try to repost that uh, up at 21st Century Wire, uh, and hopefully either after the show or or on Monday. Uh, But back back to Duma. You know this whole story. Even I'm sure you you followed this closely as it as it was breaking, as many people did. Uh, The the source of the information of this alleged chemical attack. Um, the, well, first of all, the, everything is, is basically coming from two sources that I can see, um, and that is the SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society, who Ken Roth's wife works with, by the way, Ken Roth, the director of Human Rights Watch, who is very anti-Syria and pro-regime change. His wife is very closely uh, working with SAMS for years now, uh, and also the White Helmets, uh, who call themselves Syria Civil Defense. Of course, they've stolen that name from the actual civil defense in Syria, uh, and they've ripped off the name and then have, have a sort of secondary uh, brand moniker of the White Helmets. They provided the video. Uh, they provided the press release. Uh, so this is where all the, the, the information comes from. Uh, and the, the, the British officials are saying that, uh, well, of course, Assad must have done it because he needed to launch a chemical weapons attack to get Jaish al-Islam to surrender, uh, because otherwise they wouldn't have surrendered, and this is a tactic Assad uses over and over again. Um, so I think you know the, the story uh, uh, very well, Eva, but, I mean, it, is there no... <laughs> It's not not even an attempt to present any actual evidence. I and mean, we t- we heard about blood samples uh, that the French secretly received, uh, and we heard we've seen CNN up at the refugee camps in in Idlib or Turkey with all the thousands, hundreds, or thousands of survivors from this brutal chemical attack. What do you think about all this? And are you able to break any of that down? Well, I mean, um, in 2013, Mint Press News actually was the first that I'm aware of that actually did a very interesting report debunking the allegations of the 2013 
alleged chemical attacks and saying, in fact, um, all they they said, in fact, the the so-called rebels were guilty. And I I don't remember the specifics of the article. I could certainly find it and send it to you. But I remember they they sent um, and I spoke with the Mint Press editor Manar Mahawish recently. Um, it, when I was in New York, and, and she said we sent, I believe it was two journalists to the area in question. They were able to speak with some of these so-called rebels who admitted that they had this, these weapons that they weren't familiar with. And so, I mean, the 2013 attacks, just like the the, the recent allegations, and just like Han Shekun, um, always the timing is so questionable. Um, in, in the case of 2013, it was, I believe, the eve before weapons inspectors arrived in Syria. In the case of um, the allegations of 2018, it was when the Syrian army had been able to eradicate terrorism in almost, I believe, um, over 80% of Duma. So, you know, just when the terrorists are on their last limbs, um, they we're meant to believe the Syrian army used chemical weapons when, as others have pointed out before me, the Syrian army have members of their families in, in eastern Ghouta. So it's, it's, it is illogical to think that they're as crazy and sadistic as terrorists who will fire upon areas where their loved ones are. But the, the Syrian army, why would they want to use chemical weapons when the people they care about are living in those areas? That's just one. I mean, the other one is, as Peter Ford, former British ambassador to Syria, has said in a few interviews, use your brain, um, you know, make your brain work. It's illogical to think that the Syrian government would even want to, knowing what the repercussions of using chemical weapons would be. But then when we think about the... Um, what followed these alleged attacks. And also, pardon me, but it was following um, a week following when Trump had said they would start pulling the U.S. out of Syria. So the, yeah, it's really logical and credible to think that the Syrian government decided the best thing to do on that news was to sabotage itself. Um, but following that, then the U.S. response was to, to say, we have evidence, and that was, like you said, sounds, which is completely U.S. State Department aligned, and um, the White Helmets and other such trustworthy media, and then to launch an attack on Syria, one of whose targets was um, a laboratory in Berze, Damascus. So um, uh, if we're meant to believe that the Syrian government, even though, even though the, the body that um, investigates chemical weapons, um, the OPCW had already, as Ambassador Jaffrey noted in one of the UN sessions, had already in recent years, um, if not last year, issued two separate, um, you know, papers or notices saying that they deemed this factory clear of chemical weapons. So that aside, if we, if we actually believe that the, um, this laboratory in Berze possessed toxic chemical weapons, then doesn't it seem illogical to bomb it when it's in a densely inhabited area of Damascus? So, I mean, all these um, things, it's, it's quite clear the U.S. is grasping at straws, not just the U.S., but their allies, and they're recycling this very tired chemical weapons um, story that I would hope more and more people are waking up to the fact that now they, they've never had any evidence. And to the contrary, there has been much evidence, like Han al-Asil in 2012 um, and Ghouta in 2013, at least, um, that the, the, the terrorists had the means and ability to um, perpetrate such an attack. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, here's this is amazing, too. There's so many of these reports, but... Uh, uh, the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom is is running point on what really kind of it's beginning to be more obvious as kind of propaganda to reinforce uh, the sort of U.S. U.K. narratives on on all of these uh, wild and fantastic claims. So the Guardian put out a story on April seventeenth. Okay, this is like four days after the uh, airstrike. And uh, it was it was basically their report on the Duma atrocity, as they called it. And so they're they're claiming that um, that th- there were medics and survivors who remained in Duma, uh, and but everyone else had fled to northern Syria. Uh, and so they ridiculed any claims that the attack uh, d- did not take place or that there was no gas used. And so apparently these medics and survivors who remained in Duma. Uh, how did how did the Guardian talk to them? Well, apparently this was all done through their reporters in Istanbul and Beirut. So they didn't have anybody on the ground. Uh, and yet they're claiming that these people, they're, they're claiming there's medics and survivors in Duma. And this ran, and nobody questioned this at the time. Um, and there's just so much shoddy journalism. I'm going to say that the, the Guardian is fabricating. Uh, it look, This is looks to me like a classic fabricated report. 
um, because there is no way to confirm uh, what you're looking at there. In fact, there are journalists who came in after that, like Robert Fisk, uh, who is one of the probably most prolific uh, award-winning war reporters, maybe in British history, possibly. Uh, And he was on the ground in Duma, and what he said refutes this Guardian report and so so many others have as well and robert fisk was maligned uh he's been trolled uh he's been called all sorts of names insulted basically just completely uh disowned by the uh wider media establishment why because the facts that he came up with they 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 somehow veered away or they contravened the official government uk u.s government story on this and so it's hard to know where to start, uh, but I think we need to call out some of these mainstream media outlets. I think they're producing propaganda by the looks of it, Eva. My, my own my own assessment. I'm not alone, by the way. Um, well, I mean, uh, Robert Fisk is is like the last person that one could call an Assad apologist and yes. <laughs> apologist because he makes quite clear his distaste for the Syrian government. So the fact that he was on the ground talking to, um, I believe it was the doctor, the main doctor, one of the doctors in the Duma hospital, and then also talking with civilians on the street, um, and he refutes their evidence and also happens to very be, be very anti-Syrian government, and yet the Guardian goes ahead and maligns him. That does show how clear their agenda is. I mean, and this, of course, follows um, their personal attacks on Vanessa Bealy and myself, and I believe on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and their their staunch defense of the white helmets, their their um, their unwillingness to even question whether this entity could be more than could be other than what it is portrayed as, um, and of course, you know, the Guardian's George Monbiot has also you know, participated in quite crass um, personal attacks, especially on Vanessa Bealy. Um So they've certainly uh, I have no idea what's up with the Guardian. I mean. Uh, Certainly not a paper that I would donate um, a coffee, a coffee's worth to, uh, but they're not alone. Huffington Post, which is um, I don't know what kind of readership they have, but they've been busy getting in on the act of character assassinations instead of doing actual journalism. Um, but you have so many now independent journalists, in addition to Robert Fisk, who is uh, with the with the Independent, in addition to Syrian and Russian journalists who first reported it. Now you have all these people corroborating it. And the corporate media is refusing to even question the official narrative. And that, that speaks volumes about the corporate media's agenda. Sure. And, uh, you know, the, 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 yeah, just quickly, you know, the, almost all of their claims, actually, the, the Guardian anyway, are based on uh, information from the White Helmets, who themselves have, we're told, fled, they fled to Turkey uh, somehow on the, the buses uh, that were sending uh, the jihadists, their families, uh, and uh, supporters, I guess, uh, up to Idlib or wherever they were shipped off to. The White Helmets apparently hitched a ride there. And um, so, so it's it's not really uh, a credible source. Um, it, it, would you agree with me that the, the brand of the White Helmets is, is really damaged um, worldwide, I think? Um, how do you see that, uh, in terms of how people view them. And, you know, you, you talk to people, Eva, who don't follow the news, probably when you're out in the field and you're traveling, who don't follow the news as closely. They don't know all the ins and outs, but they they probably have heard something or read something um, or, or expressed doubt about the white helmets. Uh, how, how, how are you hearing that? Um, well, I actually don't have a sense of what, what the public opinion is on the white helmets. I do get a lot of messages um, thanking me, although I think that thanks is misattributed because certainly Vanessa's done by far the deepest and most in-depth research into the White Helmets and, of course, Corey Morningstar um, before her. But I do get a lot of people messaging and saying, you know, they were duped at first, but now they, they see quite clearly what the White Helmets um, really are. And, um, you know, given the fact that wherever, whatever, wherever areas are liberated and White Helmets have had centers, they're inevitably always next to Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. Like, for example, the one in Sakba, as I mentioned, I believe that was Faila Rahman. And by the way, that, that munitions factory I mentioned, those mortars would have been used to fire on Damascus civilians. And I think that's an important point to note because 
our media never was talking about the at least 10,000 civilians that were murdered by these freedom-loving terrorists um, when they fired missiles and mortars on Damascus for years. Um, and, and when the media was pulling the last doctor and, and save the civilians of Ghouta stunt, um, they didn't rejoice in the fact that now people in Damascus are free, almost free, of the reign of terror of missiles and mortars. There are still missiles and mortars coming from Yarmouk and Hadr al-Aswad, but liberating Ghouta was a, a, a significant step in, in bringing peace and stability back to Damascus. Uh, I went to Aleppo this trip, and I, um, I was interested to see what was Life, what life was like, even though I had been there last summer. Last summer, my focus was, well, on Amran Daknish and, and meeting his family and his father and hearing his story and going to, you know, the eye hospital complex that had been occupied by terrorists and, and the, the basements of which had been turned into prisons to try civilians in Sharia courts. So I didn't actually have time in my trip last year to go to areas like the Citadel. But this time I did, and I was amazed at the, the pulse of life there. But I also, um, I talked with um, Pierre Lacourse, and I know you've had him on your show, and if, if listeners don't know who he is, I really, really encourage you, encourage them to look him up on Facebook. It's Pierre Lacourse with an F. Um, and he's been there for years now in Aleppo doing amazing work with um, youths especially. And uh, I, I had a chance to talk with him about their, you know, how they're dealing with life now uh, post-liberation. But also, and I, I, I put some... Um, videos up from that Aleppo visit so people can check out what Pierre had to say but also to go with Khaled Iskaif, the wonderful Syrian journalist in Aleppo to the White Helmets complex in Ansari and to see again just like in Sokba, it was literally next door to um, Al-Qaeda and other terrorist factions in, um, in that district of Aleppo and Khaled also pointed out that just down the road, like less than 50 meters from the White Helmets building, which was a school they occupied, and the school is now being used as it should be used um, by children <laughs> as in school, uh, but just down the road from there was the point where um, Nuruddin Azinki executed Abdullah Isa. So, again, everywhere we find White Helmet centers, and uh, you, I know you've visited some yourself, um, we can see they're in bed with the terrorists that are attacking civilians. So if that myth of the White Helmet is not dead for other people, I, um, you know, I don't know what it takes to wake them up because it's, it's beyond clear now that they do not have um, civilians in mind. Fleeing to Idlib with terrorists and burning, burning valuable equipment, fire trucks and ambulances as they did in Sakba. what kind of rescuers do this thing? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. It's uh, the these aren't uh, first responders, uh, and uh, I think the thing I always come back to Eva is they claim at one point I believe some of them were claiming to have saved a hundred thousand lives since they came on the scene in two thousand thirteen. Then that figure kind of got dropped down to like ninety, and then then they even dropped it down to seventy. It might be back up to a hundred again. But that kind of yo-yos up and down, of course. But you know, they're claiming they saved 70,000 lives and they're first responders. They've got hundreds of millions of dollars, Eva, from from the U.K. government, uh, from the U.S. government combined, from all the EU member states, uh, from as far far afield as Japan, I believe. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Wouldn't, wouldn't a, a, a legitimate or a real fir first responder or search and rescue outfit, wouldn't they take the names and fill out accident reports or at least keep some records of the people who they are uh, supposedly rescuing, the names, the addresses, the, the parents' names of all these thousands of children? We've seen the videos they, they continually produce. Um, the, the, I don't think there's any record to validate these astronomical numbers which they have uh they're claiming that they've rescued all these hundred thousand people i guess at the highest uh, i mean that it cut eva it just comes back to basics really um what sort of organization are they yeah i i don't know about their records um maybe they burned the records when they burned the vehicles i i really don't know but i I know that um, at least in areas I've been to, terrorists were meticulous in keeping records of the people they imprisoned, um, of their own members of terrorist organizations. So you'd assume if the White Helmets were uh, rescuing people, they would also be meticulous. And like you said, it is standard practice 
for um, for doctors, for hospitals to keep a record of patients, their intake patients. So that is, that's a very good question, and I wonder if The Guardian has ever produced any of these um, records since they are so um, staunchly defending the white helmets. Um, but I was going through my notes, and I found um, when I was talking to a group of men and, and youths, like teens, at um, a vegetable uh, vendor in Duma, I was asking about the white helmets, and I, I did find um, one of their replies, and they said during the last days people used to die, and they, meaning the white helmets, never aided anyone. Uh, we never saw them. That happened a lot. The white helmets are called civil defense. Um, they were supposedly for the civilians, but they were the contrary. They were for the army, the human Jaish al-Islam. Um, and it, he said something like, whether in medicine um, or the whole medical staff, they neglected the whole people. Um, and just reiterated that they work with Jason Islam. And this is just a normal, like, this isn't a government official, this is just a normal person on the street in Duma. Sure. Yeah. And um, <laughs> one, one of the things that's amazing um, is, I, don't, I, just, I also come back to the fact that almost all of the videos that they produce, they're all shot pretty much the same way. This is exact same sequence of events. A, a van rolls up, the door opens, they run out, they've got the helmet cam on, and they run by sort of men and a series of men who are looking at them and kind of in the way. And then, then, then they run and they meet somebody who almost always has a baby or a child in hand. Uh, and then that child is handed to them and then it's passed on to another person. I, I can't count how many videos I've seen they've produced that are pretty much the same, it's identical, basically. Um, yeah. And it, it just kind of really smacks of being completely staged. Maybe it's just well, me. I don't know. Other people have commented on this as well, but I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that out all there. The, all the yellas, yella, 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 yella. I mean, I know yella is one of the most used, aside from Habibi, words in, in Arab, Arabic-speaking um, areas, but... Uh, as I said in another interview, um, I did work with rescuers in Gaza, and uh, I, I wasn't a rescuer, but I was documenting the Israeli war crimes, and so I was riding in ambulances. And I swear to God, they did not behave like this. They were focused on their work. Yes, they communicated, but there's so much jabbering going on in the White Helmets videos, unnecessary jabbering, and of course all the religious utterances they utter. Like, I, I never, and, and Gaza is a very devout area too, so they, they are religious, and it's not like they don't know the vocabulary, but the point is they were just too busy doing their work, and really, like, if you just um, turn, like, don't look at the video, just listen to the jabbering in the White Helmets videos, and you'll see how comical it is. They're, they they really do seem to be acting or, for some reason, uttering a whole lot of jobbering that is unnecessary. It's, it's irrelevant to their actual supposed rescue work. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The the religious utterances are quite extraordinary as well. Um, but, well, you know, as as that unravels uh, quickly, the question is, I guess, the last question with the white helmets is, where do they have left to operate in Syria? Because are they not running out of places where they can sort of operate? I'm sure the Kurds don't want them uh, in, in northeastern Syria in the U.S. occupied bit. Uh, I don't think they're welcome anywhere else in Syria. Um, are they in? Do you think they are in Daraa, or do you think uh, they're all in Idlib, or have they just scuttled off to Turkey? Uh, I, I can't speak definitively about that. I think that I saw something about them, um, a video of theirs from Dada, but I, I don't know 100%. But I am glad that you mentioned Dada, because I, that is something I'd like to address since I was recently there. Oh, absolutely. So you, so you went to Dara, and a lot of people believe, Eva, that, that, that if there's going to be another sort of staged chemical attack or another provocation like we saw uh, in Duma, uh, it, that it, it will happen there. It will happen in Dara, or it will happen in in Idlib. Um, so you traveled down past Sweda to Dara, down to the south. Were you there on this last trip? Yeah. So I actually um, Sweda is further to the southeast. Dara is um, almost straight south from Damascus, maybe slightly west. I'd have to look at the map again. But yeah, I did go there. Um, it's about four days ago now. And uh, the reason I was interested in going there is because we're told, well, you and I had a conversation about this once when we met up in Lebanon. Um, some 
people, or many people perhaps, uh, really believe that things kicked off in Dara and that this was the birthplace of the so-called revolution. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, they believe the official narrative um, spouted by Western talking heads and their lapdog media that um, the so-called revolution was uh, peaceful for the first, I don't know, some people say six months, some people say a year. But many people, Professor Tim Anderson, um, Sharmin Narwani, other valued journalists have written about events in Dara and how there were armed people in, amongst the protesters from the very beginnings, from March 2011. And in one of my visits in summer 2016, I interviewed a soldier and he told his account of what happened. He was sent there and the violence that he and the 300 other soldiers and I think it was 500 police encountered at the hands of protesters who were armed and firing on them and they did not have arms. But I, I was interested in actually going there and trying to speak with other people that could corroborate this story. So first, before I went to Dara, um, some days before that, I met a doctor, Dr. Amar Ghansus, and he was a doctor in the field hospital, uh, sorry, the military hospital in Dara, about 40 kilometers from the city of Dara. And what he had to say, I'll just, I, I haven't had a chance to put his interview up because I literally just left Syria, so I've got a lot of things to do sifting through my notes, but essentially some of the more important things of what he had to say was um, the manipulation of the media, notably Al Jazeera in that time, and that's actually, I have to say also, the soldier I interviewed, he also cited Al Jazeera saying that he later saw Al Jazeera airing footage of Dara of March 2011, and he knew exactly that was from March 2011, but it was later aired in May or later with Al Jazeera saying this is happening now in Dada. But with regards to Dr. Rantus, what he said was he was on staff in the um, military hospital, and um, before the, the next Friday of protest in March 2011, he said um, a general briefed the hospital staff, specifically instructing them to give priority to civilians. So if civilians and or soldiers came into the hospital for treatment, they were to treat civilians first. This is a top-down order. Um, now, one of the lies that Al Jazeera spouted was they were saying that the hospital was denying treatment to civilians, and this is um, categor- categorically false, according to Dr. Amr. Uh, he also said there were so many doctors on staff that he didn't have anything to do, and he consequently was sitting drinking coffee watching the news, watching Al Jazeera and seeing their lies, because another of the lies was to say that there was not enough doctors on staff. So first they say they were rejecting um, civilians, and then they say there were no doctors in the hospital. And he, it was definitely the hospital he was at, and not another one, because he said he also saw um, footage being streamed live from one of the hospital rooms, which begs the question, in March 2011, who had the technology to be live streaming from a hospital in Dara? Um, I certainly, with um, a Samsung S, um, Galaxy 7 and the Syrian, um, uh, what's the technology? The, I had internet data, but I don't think I could have streamed with the, the phone I had. And I, I just wonder, the average citizen in Dara, what kind of phone they had that enabled them to live stream from that hospital? And I would suspect the answer is they had a pretty high-tech gadget that most civilians didn't have. But in any case, um, what was the third lie? Um, well, he said that... The, soldiers were being brought in, and they were being brought in with sniper wounds. Um, and that, that correlates to the story, or the, the investigations, I should say, of Tim Anderson and, and many other journalists who said, um, having investigated what was being reported by Syrians and by Syrians on the ground, that there were snipers amongst the crowd that were firing at security forces. Now, when I went to Dada, one of the people I spoke with was a priest, um, Father Georges Rizik, and he uh, gave a, a fantastically informative interview, um, and some of the highlights of that interview was speaking from his own experience. He said, we saw the protesters shooting at one another to blame the government. Um, he also mentioned having seen people coming from the countryside of Dara uh, by, on motorcycles um, sitting on their weapons to try to disguise them, to smuggle them in. He said um, one of the churches was targeted. Um, this was later on in 2013. But he said that terrorists waited um, until people were in church for prayers for Mass, and then they targeted them to target Christians. He did hear the sectarian um, um, slander that we've heard Syrians have reported, saying protesters saying um, Alois to the grave and Christians to Beirut. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, regarding the media lies, he said, frankly, we know the truth. We lived it. We live in it. And we don't care what you believe. We know um, what we have lived. And if you're going to lie, we don't care because we know what the truth is. And he also, um, he said problems started also with um, clerics. I believe he was referring to Muslim clerics in Dara that were trying to encourage all religious clerics to take a position against the government. And he said he himself got a call from one of these so-called rebels, um, although he didn't specify the date, um, asking or calling upon him to um, take an anti-Syrian government position. And he said that would necessitate him leaving his church, his family, because the government was protecting him and his family. So those, that was just one of many interesting testimonies. I also got testimonies from um, a sheikh in, in Dara, um, from people who had been injured by terrorist attacks, um, people talking about attacks on churches. And um, then I, I was able to go to a school that has been badly damaged, and there was literally 150 meters away from um, the terrorist front line. So getting to that school is dangerous for um, for school children. Going past it is dangerous for civilians because they're literally in the line of sniper fire. And um, further along um, on the road that would eventually lead to the state hospital, um, that was also a very dangerous road because at the end of that road, 100, 150 meters off were, were more snipers. Um, and this is interesting because um, that the, on that road also there was a private hospital and that had been um, closed due to intense shelling from terrorist factions. And I was told by a local from Dara that 40 people at least had been killed on that road through um, shelling and sniping from terrorists. And the hospital itself, which you can only access by going down a lane that is... Um, very dangerous because of the risk of being sniped. So needless to say, the car I was in was um, gunning down the lane to get to the hospital. The hospital itself has been badly damaged by shelling, terror shelling, and by sniping. So they have entire wards that are off limits now. They can't reach their children's um, hospital or children's ward, their gynecology ward, um, where the operations room was. They can't reach because of the risk of sniping. And also they have a, a pharmacy there that they can't reach because um, to reach it you have to pass through a sniping area. So, you know, this is uh, a hospital we would think with all the concern the West professes and the Western media professes for civilians in hospital, why aren't they talking about this hospital? And obviously my question is rhetorical because it doesn't suit their narrative. This hospital and the civilians trying to reach it are being terrorized by the groups that the West are funding or whitewashing. Yes, and and I don't know if you saw that, uh, you know, we're we're constantly told that it started off as peaceful protests uh, in Dara and across Syria. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Eva, I mean, I'm pretty sure that... uh, in the initial Dara protest, uh, they burned down the judiciary courthouse building downtown, the uh, demonstrators, if you will, um, mm-hmm. and the sniping as well, which is is a gray area that uh, a lot of people don't want to sort of interrogate. They automatically want to blame that on the government shooting peaceful protesters. Uh, and so I think that's really important work you're doing there. But uh, I don't think these were peaceful protests uh, in Dara starting out. I think it was it was very violent, uh, in fact, from the beginning. Uh, so this is part of the mythology uh, that's used to sort of build the story. Uh, go ahead. Well, exactly. I mean, so first I had, from two years ago, I had the testimony of the soldier that was sent to Dara and that came under fire from these so-called peaceful protesters three Fridays in a row. And now testimonies from civilians, including uh, also this priest, that was there saying, no, there were snipers and there were, there were armed people among the protesters shooting on one another, shooting on protesters to um, incriminate the Syrian government. Uh, so, I mean, I, I also have, and this will take some time to plow through, but um, I have the records of the um, one of the Ba'ath Party leaders in Dara kept the records for one year, so from early 2011 to at some point 2012, of the various crimes committed by so-called protesters. Um, and it's a pretty thick book, um, so crimes including assassinations. Um, so that will be uh, very informative, I think. And I also have a, a, a DVD given to me by a journalist there um, with also you know, documentation of these different crimes. Um, so I think there's a lot of information to glean from that. But I, um, I also, when I was there, I asked about Hans al-Khatib, who was, um, we were told, um, he was beaten to death by security forces. And I had heard um, some years ago from another person 
that, in fact, you know, he was killed in crossfire, and there were, I believe, three um, bullet holes in his abdomen and, and chest, and he was not beaten to death. And the person that told me that said he had actually seen the coroner's report and seen a photo of Khatib after his death, and there was no bruising. Um, when I was in Dara, I had this repeated to me, not about the coroner's report, but that, that Khatib was amongst a group of people, whether he was participating or not, th- this person didn't specify, but he was amongst a group of people that were firing on security forces who then returned fire. So um, that's another, you know, chipping away at the, the mythology of how things actually began in, in Syria and in Dara specifically. Yeah, it's very important that uh, this this story comes out and, and and has done so with rigorous research and detail because I'll tell you, Eva, they're teaching this in in classes and universities all over the world. This is part of the curriculum now. The peaceful protests uh, that were brutally put down by by the dictator Bashar al Assad. That is the, that is how most people in the West are being taught. Uh, that's the foundational narrative of this Syrian so-called civil war. Uh, and, and Dara is a really, really key part of that. So, you know, it's very important work. So, um, you know, I, I, we, we completely support, uh, you know, your efforts there, but, um, we're just going to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but, um, there's, there's a lot of other things that I'm sure you, you can share with us. I mean, uh, one of them is what's it like in Damascus, Eva, when there's not, continuous mortar fire i know they're still getting uh incoming from yarmouk and and some of these other last remaining isis strongholds uh, for instance but what's it like being able to were you able to walk through the old city of damascus without you know without that sort of fear of uh mortar incoming mortars or, or rockets yeah like like you said there are still um mortars and missiles landing on areas like midan closer to yarmouk or hajar aswad but Damascus, I mean, because, Patrick, I was um, on my visits to Syria over the years, for example, especially in 2014, the mortars were incessant um, throughout the day. It was nonstop mortaring. And um, and also on visits in 2015 and 2016, not quite as hard as I experienced in 2014, but still, nonetheless, at any any day, you know, there could be a mortar, and there, there were mortars targeting civilians, schools, marketplaces, etc., um, I made a point of asking people I was encountering as I was waiting to go other places in Syria. I walked around Damascus and was talking to people about how they felt, and of course it was relief. Um, but they said prior to the liberation of Ghouta that the number of mortars and the intensity really ramped up, and it was horrible, horrifying. But now, I mean, um, yeah, it was an amazing atmosphere, really, just to know that people didn't have to fear at some moment whether they're kids were walking home from school or whether they were sitting at an indoor or outdoor cafe um they didn't have to fear any longer being mortared yeah but there is one more issue um and we don't maybe have time to get into but um i would like to at least refer people to look at the facebook page of mahmoud tawil who is from the the village of hadar in kunaitra and i did have a chance to go visit him um and um just in some that village has been targeted by um, al-Nusra, another terrorist, uh, for years. And um, together with the Syrian Arab Army, they've defended themselves from being um, um, invaded by these terrorists. But um, the terrorists have had the backing of Israel, of course, which has um, outposts, observation posts on the mountains overlooking the entire district. But, I mean, um, if, you, if people go to Mahmoud al-Tawil's Facebook page, um, I would encourage you to follow and support him because um, Hadar is still uh, potentially being attacked, and um, he's even posted recently about um, being in periods of darkness and um, well about what the people in Hadar are facing. So when, when I talked to people, they were I believe it was um, offhand I think it was at least 130 people in that village were killed, and it's only a village of around 10,000 people. Um, so it's another area of Syria that's been out of the media spotlight because um, because the people are suffering at the hands of the terrorists, which we support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drop drop us uh, on the uh, um, social media chat or after we after we uh, leave you here, uh, and I will post that on the show page uh, for this episode, so people will be able to to click through and, and find out more about that, uh, that issue. Uh, so we really appreciate that. But, um, well, uh, that's, that's all we have, uh, uh, on this segment, Eva, but, uh, you know, 
great great work uh, as as usual and uh, everyone out out here appreciates your efforts uh, and what you're you know dedicated to doing which is is really telling the uh, the full and truthful story uh, about one of the longest dirtiest wars uh, of our times uh, and this is the the war on Syria uh, and so we we very much appreciate it and uh, you're a voice for truth and uh, you're a great representative of the independent uh, media uh, as it's informally known, but uh, thank you. Oh well, thank you so much, Pat. And uh, I will have more videos coming out as um, as I sit and sift through them and get them subtitled. So um, I'll try to prioritize getting some of the English ones out sooner from Mahmoud and from the doctor that I mentioned who was in Dara. But thanks a lot for having me on so early and after having left Syria. That's great. And take care. Safe travels, Eva Bartlett. Uh, hope to speak to you soon. Great. Thanks. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's Eva Bartlett, independent journalist, uh, just off an extended uh, fact-finding trip, an investigative trip uh, inside Syria. Uh, you can see her uh, work at uh, her website, which is uh, In Gaza and Beyond. There's a link to it on the show page. Now keep an eye on Eva's work. You can also follow her on Twitter uh, and on Facebook uh, as well. So we have links to those uh, on the show page as well. We'll get more links up before the end of the show. But uh, we're going to take a short commercial break. Uh, we're going to connect with our next guest, uh, Robert Inlakesh, who's going to join us after the break. Uh, so stick around. Uh, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. We'll be right back. Something's got to change. After the rain now Things just can't stay Stay the same No right now Something's got to change After the rain now Stay, stay the same 